Bloomberg Behind the Scenes is brought to you by Interactive Brokers. Use an integrated investment account from Interactive Brokers to earn, borrow, spend, and invest globally from one account. Learn more at IBKR.com. From the Interactive Brokers Market Lounge, I'm Tom Keen. And joining us now is a most interesting gentleman. And in this wonderful discussion behind the scenes, we're going to talk a little bit more about who he is rather than the hot issues right now of the repurchase agreement market and the Fed independence and such. He's William Dudley. He was at Goldman Sachs when I first ran into him years ago out of uh, Berkeley and then on to public service with Tim Geithner at a crucial moment for our economics and finance, uh, working uh, then at the New York Fed and then on to uh, writing and thinking about our greater economics. Bill Dudley, wonderful to have you here. Thanks, Tom. uh, With us. I I wanted you to talk about the distinction, which has always been the hallmark of Bill Dudley economics, which you never, ever let go of the microeconomic rigor that's out there. This was pounded into you in in (laughs) New Florida and at Berkeley as well. There's a difference if you do micro, if you commit microeconomics, isn't there? Well, I think the difference for me is that uh, because I I specialize in microeconomics in terms of my training, uh, but then I worked for a guy that did macroeconomics for five years at Berkeley, a professor. I sort of lo- I, I learned how the two sort of go together, and I think you know, especially during the financial crisis, we basically saw that you can't really do macroeconomics good if you're not aware of what's going on exactly. in the financial system. And exactly. you know, one of the problems in academia is historically the finance department and the macro department haven't really talked to each other. Yes, and if you look at some of the sophisticated macro models that people use. They've basically had no financial sector in them. And so I think that the, you know, looking at you know, both pieces, I think is important to understand how the financial system can get impaired and how that can then feed back and hurt the macro economy. And the other idea is whatever the economic issue is, whether it's this up or over the repurchase agreement market, we'll talk about that in a minute, is overweighting secondary and tertiary important ideas versus the primary issue. In 2007 and 2008, what was the primary microeconomic issue that you confronted with Chairman Bernanke and with Mr. Geithner? Well, I think at the end of the day, we found out that the financial system didn't have sufficient capital to handle a deep downturn in the housing sector. So, you know, people always you know, ask me the question, well, was a mistake made about Lehman Brothers? Should it have been saved? And my answer is always, I don't think it would have changed very much because at the end of the day, you needed the TARP legislation because you needed a pile of money to actually recapitalize the financial system. So you remember, even even after Lehman failed, the first round TARP passage legislation mm-hmm. failed. So my view at the end of the day is you, you basically things were going to get bad until you actually got an act of Congress that provided the sufficient resources to recapitalize the banking system. And that's what we had. And it actually took quite a bit of time. If you remember, it wasn't until the stress tests were completed right. in the I, spring I, of 2009 I... that people were really confident that, okay, the banks have some problems. They need this much capital. Uh, and the TARP, right. uh, TARP stands ready to provide it. And only at that point in time uh, did people start to become confident that the, you know, the great financial crisis was going to come to an end. And for all of us in economics, finance, and investment, we had these moments seared in our mind, whether it was Bill Dudley living it with his leadership with Chairman Bernanke and Secretary Geithner. I remember standing with our Otis Bilodeau right by the Bloomberg terminals as those headlines came out that the first round of stress tests showed a better America. Why did Europe get it wrong? What was the best practices we did that Europe has failed to do? 
Well, there, I think there's a couple of things. I think, uh, one, I think the Fed was pretty darn transparent about the stress test. They basically published like what they, what the expected loss, you know, they published what the economic scenario was. They published what the expected losses were on each different kinds of asset classes. So people in the marketplace could evaluate whether the stress t- tests were credible or not. I remember the next day after the stress test came out, I think it was the afternoon, the next day, uh, uh, Bridgewater, Ray Dalio, published a, a, a piece that basically said, big headline, we agree. And I knew that that was just as important as the mm-hmm. stress test because it's about confidence in the financial system. Right. So we <clears> gave <throat> enough information for Bridgewater and others to make their own independent analysis and determine whether the, whether, whether the stress test was credible and whether there was enough capital to flow into the banking system. Let's slam it forward. You were the president of the New York Federal Reserve. Uh, its unique characteristics in monitoring our financial system. And let's go to the word confidence. Has the confidence in the New York Fed and the system been tested in the recent days? This uproar over so-called repos, the repurchase agreement, that thing between cash and securities, has it been tested? I mean, I suppose you could argue it's been tested, but I think at the end of the day, the, as I wrote in an opinion piece I did for Bloomberg, uh, the Fed's got this. Uh, the upper pressure on the repo rate has already been taken care of by mm-hmm. uh, the Fed buying a large, doing a large, large repo transactions in the marketplace. And I think we'll see the Fed uh, do more. I think the Fed will probably start to grow its balance sheet mm-hmm. again to add more reserves to the banking system. And it's possible the Fed could even put in place a standing repo facility to make sure that this can't happen again. You, you and others will have to explain this 4,000 times. It's a question that I didn't think I'd ask three months ago. Well, here it is. Explain again why this new lift in the balance sheet is Mm -hmm. not QE4. Is it QE light or is it completely removed from this fear that conservatives have over quantitative easing? It's not QE. Both quantitative easing and the Fed expanding its balance sheet to take upward pressure off the repo market, both of those things add reserves to the banking system, but the goals are completely different. Uh, under uh, to, to address the repo market, the Fed wants to add reserves so there's enough reserves in the system. Under quantitative easing, the Fed wants to buy long-term securities to push long-term interest rates down. So the goals are very, very different. So I think it's important when, as the Fed goes forward and begins to expand its balance sheet again to be very clear that this isn't quantitative easing. I think uh, Richard Clarida actually tried made, made that point. This is something uh, completely different. Now, one way they could sort of reinforce that would be to expand their balance sheet mainly by buying treasury bills rather than buying longer duration assets. They did that, I think it would make it very clear that this isn't a quantitative easing. Let's go through that. That's very important. Within QE, they're buying, what, seven-year paper? And longer, yeah. The whole idea of quantitative <clears throat> of easing was to buy long-term uh, treasury securities and agency mortgage-backed securities mm-hmm. to try to push down long-term interest rates. If the Fed decides to expand its balance sheet now, all their their goal is not to try to address long-term interest rates to push them any lower. They're already very What maturity low. can they go out to within T-bills to do that, to affect constructive reserve amounts without oh, they could, affecting I, I, Yeah, I think, if, I think if they bought, you know, three months, six months, you know, you know, yearly treasury bills. Interesting. It, it would be not. Interesting. It would not be an issue at all. And of course, the treasury can also adjust the composition of its issuance to accommodate the Fed. I want to go behind the scenes here uh, in 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 what we're doing to an arch issue right now, which is not only Fed independence and the work uh, of your your Bloomberg opinion essay that created so much of a firestorm, and the follow up essay as well. But to Jerome Powell, non-PhD economist, he's the pinata for the president. Let's begin with with principle one. Is he going after Jerome Powell because he's a non-PhD economist or is the president blind to that? I don't think that has anything to do with it. I mean, 
would be odd if that was important to the president, given that he appointed uh, Chair exactly. Powell. So I don't think that has yeah. anything to do with it. I think, I think what this is all about is that the president knows that he's taking risks with the economy in terms of the trade war that's going on with China because it's creating uncertainty about uh, the, uh, you know, how, how does one actually do trade in the world? Where do you locate your production? Uh, and so that's dampening investment spending. And second, the increase in tariffs is a, essentially a tax on consumers and businesses, and that also restrains the economy. And so he's trying to say, look, uh, yeah, don't look at that. If the economy weakens, it's the Fed's fault. And I, you know, you know, the point of my opinion piece, what I was really trying to accomplish was to make it clear uh, that if the economy weakens, it's basically because of trade uncertainty. And the Federal Reserve should be careful to make sure they don't own that because they're not responsible for the trade uncertainty. But even since your piece, we're seeing tangible global data, which, which uh, Chairman Powell mentioned in the last press conference as well. The South Korea export and import data was, was grim as the only word for it. We see maybe less grim from Germany, but nevertheless, it's tangible slowdowns there as well. What can the U.S. central bank do to assist these really struggling global economies? Well, there's not much. That, limited. I mean, what the Fed can do is follow the appropriate monetary policy for the U.S. that generates sustained economic expansion in the U.S. without an inflation problem. And if they do that, that creates a good environment for other countries. But what the Fed can't do is, you know, remove trade uncertainty and its effects on China and the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. You know, a slowdown in China has a pretty big consequence for the rest of the world because if you look at the impetus to growth over the last, you know, decade, right. most of the impetus to growth in the world has been coming from China. The last thing I want to talk about is our fiscal position. At Goldman Sachs, you and Ed McKelvey years ago wrote brilliantly about the challenges of our fiscal expansion and the need. You, you, it's not that you were wrong. You were way out front, but it's now <laughs> ugly. There's zeros attached to where we were over 14 years. What does a trillion dollar in a sustained trillion dollar deficit mean to Bill Dudley? Well, that we're on a path that, you know, any anytime you're on an unsustainable path, you know it's going to end at some point. And if you don't bring it to an end, it's probably going to be ended. How do we in a, in begin a, a, to diminish this deficit? Well, look I, look, I mean, there's a lot of ways to think about how you could do it. I mean, you could do, you know, you can obviously raise taxes. You can cut spending. Um, I think the, the problem that I see is, is not really, you know, that we have a trillion dollar deficit today, but that we have a trillion dollar deficit as far as the eye can see. And there's going to be upward pressure on deficits if you look out over the next five to 10 years because debt service costs are going to continue to increase. And baby boomers like myself are <clears throat> retiring. Uh, and oh, that's really? going to put upward pressure on uh, Medicare spending and on Social Security spending. I, I, I look at the deficit story and it's not a market it, issue right now. It, it's not. Clearly, it's, it's not, not a market, market issue right now. And I think the, part of the reason for that is because people are still worried about the risk of deflation. Uh, and mm -hmm. so, therefore, if you're worried about deflation risk. You want to own long-term bonds because that's your hedge for deflation risk. That's your hedge for bad economy. Now, if inflation actually ever were to reemerge, then the bond market would start to worry about inflation. And then all of a sudden, yeah. bonds would not, not be a hedge for that kind of an economic environment. Now, this has been a wonderful conversation. Bill Dudley, thank you so much. And thank you for writing for Bloomberg Opinion to huge effect worldwide. And this has been Bloomberg Behind the Scenes from the Interactive Brokers Market Lounge. Behind the Scenes brought to you by Interactive Brokers. Interactive Brokers constantly strives to innovate and create technology to automate your trading experience with their advanced trading tools. Learn how Interactive Brokers helps lower your costs to maximize your returns. You can do that at IBKR.com. 
I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.